People aren't as loyal as they may have been when the economy was down. It is a job seekers market. One in four people who are currently working for your organization are likely shopping around from what stats say. That being said, you need to help them connect the work they do on a daily basis to something bigger than themselves. You need to help them understand how the work you do as an organization changes the lives of people, makes other people's lives easier, better, whatever that may be, but they need to see that there is impact and there's a purpose to the work they're doing and you need to help them connect to it. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman. I'm your host and a coach at Quantivos. And our guest today is Laurie Duguay. Laurie is the CEO of People Powered Solutions. She and her people work to transform workplace cultures into positive and productive environments. Welcome, Laurie. Thanks for having me, Brian. I love your use of the word people. I want to start there because I think historically, when we've talked about employees, along with that comes that whole idea of their replaceable cogs in the machine. Absolutely. And so I personally have more and more tried to take that employee word out of my vocabulary. What drove you to people-centered solutions or people-powered solutions? People-powered solutions. Um, what drove me? That, that's on, on what you just mentioned, I, I want to add really quickly, even human resources, which is where my background primarily is. Career-wise, you think of the word resources and it sounds so administrative and so inhumane at the end of the day, right? It's really something that's easily replaceable. You know, you deal with depletions by finding new inputs. Like it sounds so not human at the end of the day. So I've actually, I've got a whole rant, I believe on uh, my website about how we need to do away with just the term human resources. And we need to be thinking more about being people powered and people centered. So how I ended up here to your, your initial question, I worked for 21 years in government um, in a variety of roles, but mainly in strategic HR related roles. And I would say that after about three years, uh, once I knew my job inside and out, I found myself being completely uh, checked out. What we're now recoining as quiet quitting is really just that notion of feeling stuck at work, of of not wanting to give more than you know the bare minimum, what's required from your position, not wanting to join uh, any extracurricular activities or committees or take on special projects, right? So three years into my career, I felt like that. And unfortunately, uh, where I was located, there was really no opportunities for growth. There was no opportunities for promotion. 
uh, unless I was willing to relocate and having been, you know, established here in this community, as well as having built my family here, I was, you know, not entertaining the notion of moving away two and a half hours to be able to ascend into other roles. So I ended up staying and stagnating in that role for a number of years. Uh, one of the reasons that I stayed there, other than not wanting to relocate, was also the fact that the leadership team, they didn't necessarily want to have to backfill my position, which explains why not a lot of opportunities were being sent my way. Uh, because in a satellite office, we had to provide for every different program and administer all the different services. Whereas if you were you know, in that main parent office, you could actually say, I'm a specialist in this one program. So to be able to find and retrain someone who knows all the programs, the ins and outs of all our programs, and really has this kind of multi-faceted um, approach to program delivery would have been really costly and a, a bit of a pain. So they would put this 125 kilometer radius on every competition, which means if you didn't live within 125 kilometers from where the position was, if you were the successful candidate, you had to relocate to that location uh, and or you weren't even allowed to apply. So that 125 kilometer radius rule showed up on every competition, every job posting for the next 15 years. As I started to uh, deep dive into understanding what are some of the things that drive motivation at work in trying to troubleshoot my own situation, why I felt stuck, I started to realize and recognize that my situation wasn't as unique as I thought. A lot of other people felt like me. So I started to plan my exit strategy. Uh, once I recognized, you know, that there was essentially 10 basic employee needs or not to let's stay away people needs at work to work away from your word employee um that when they're not met they'll ine inevitably start to check out or start shopping around for other jobs once i understood what those 10 needs were recognized that only about five of the 10 were being met in my current workplace i started to work with the organization to see whether or not we could improve on that when I seen that that was kind of futile, it wasn't happening, I planned my exit strategy. Went back to school, did my postgrad in HR management, labor relations, uh, started doing some consulting on the side, basically started taking my knowledge uh, and the methodology I developed to self-assess myself and to start to restructure or attempt to restructure where I was currently working uh, and started to transpose it elsewhere into other organizations and seen a lot of success in terms of these open-minded companies that understood they needed to do better for their employees. And we would really work at, at improving that culture, using those 10 needs as our guide and successfully started to uh, transform some of these companies and enable them to attract and keep the talent they needed to really thrive. So eventually I was doing that as a side gig. I was taking all my time off, which was like eight weeks plus, to do projects and realized, you know what, I think there might be a full-time gig in this. So left my position with government and I started doing it full-time and never looked back. I have since grown. I initially started doing it as the people person, HR growth solutions. And then I had to grow a team because the demand just exploded post-COVID as people were really trying to innovate and recreate their, their workplace cultures. Uh, so now we've become people-powered solutions. Laurie, you have a sign over your shoulder. It says, love what you do. I think 
what I like about this conversation we're having is the recognition there are two sides to this equation. There is the side of the person who should love what they're doing. And there's the side of the organization that if you want them to love what they're doing and where they're doing it, needs to give them an environment to love as well. Exactly. What are some of the important elements of that environment? Um, okay, so there are 10, and I'm, I'm assuming we're not doing this for an hour, so let's not go through all 10. But what I can do is talk about some of the most, when we do any uh, employee satisfaction, employee engagement surveys, what are some of those top five that we hear about? The number one is communication and or lack thereof. So people want to be in the know. They want to be provided with the information they need to do their work they're supposed to do. They also want to know what's going on in the company. Uh, even if there's no huge evolutions or shifts happening, they still want to know that you guys are, are testing things out, that senior leadership is keeping tabs, is seeing some of the smaller successes and celebrating those successes, uh, recognizes some of the challenges and are currently kind of assessing how they could they could support and, and, and help mitigate some of those challenges. People just want to be in the know. Um, even if the know is, at this time, we don't have more information than this, but we 100% commit to giving you um, additional details as they start to come in or as final decisions are made. And one of the reasons we're not providing the full scope of information right now is because there are you know, too many unknowns and we really don't want to cause panic where there's not to be had. Yes. So where it works, I want to tie this into a model that I use, which is Judith Glasser's model for building and sustaining trust. And the acronym is T-R-U-S-T. -T. The first T is transparency. Yes. Keeping people in the know. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and let's add to, your, to that, because when I talk about my communication and, and, and communication done well, I talk about transparency 100%. Also talk about 360 flow. They don't just want to be hearing from the higher ups, so the top down kind of communication. You need to be building the systems that facilitate peer to peer conversations and communication, as well as have mechanisms in place for people to field up their their feedback and to provide their insight, their observations. Because your best source for understanding where there might be uh, room for improvement or some of those continuous improvement opportunities are the frontline people who are contending with the challenges on a daily basis, right? Uh, they know what works well and they know what could be going better. So why not build the systems that facilitate that flow of information? So definitely that as well. So I, I may be taking you off course here. And if I am, I apologize. But that really brings to mind for me the need for leadership that is not historic industrial age command and control leadership. You know that you're not taking me off course because of those 10 needs, leadership is one of them, as is coaching and empowerment, autonomy and empowerment. So both of which link closely with what you just said, right? They, they don't want to work for command and control type leaders. So we need to retrain our leaders to take a people-centric approach to understand the value between, you know, coaching rather than telling the difference and the impact of that command and control, the impact of that telling. People might think that it's just easier to tell them or they might have a bit of ego at play and say, you know, I like to save the day. I, I like to provide the answer, but are you actually saving the day or are you contributing A, to a dependency of this person being conditioned to always come to you every time they encounter a challenge rather than critically, you know, kind of think 
their way through that challenge? Or B, are you contributing to a decrease in their self-confidence, making them, whether you know it's intentional or not, think that they're not capable of troubleshooting and, and thinking for themselves and coming up with their own innovative solutions? So definitely that coaching rather than telling and and understanding how you equip your your leaders to do that because i know it's cheesy but we don't leave bad jobs we leave bad bosses so if you're leaving leaders in place that are maybe technically amazing but when it comes to their people skills they're subpar then you're no further ahead of the game we do a lot of group coaching Mm -hmm. and one of the most commonly requested areas for that group coaching is developing a coaching culture. And I want to quote for just a minute from a 2018 Gallup study on how millennials want to work and live. And they identified six culture shifts, including from my boss to my coach. Also, um, and I think this is important in what you're talking as well, from my satisfaction to my development. Yes. And, and if you, the boss, are micromanaging or rushing in to save the day, exactly what you're saying, Laura, you're not developing that person. No, you're not. You're not. And I think the satisfaction, I have to be a bit of the devil's advocate, will automatically follow suit if you invest more in the development. Absolutely. They're interdependent, right? So, Yeah. No, I love that. It's it's that's a great study. It's very, but there's also the nuance. You said millennials, right? These are the folks that the younger generations who were raised with social media. That's one of my perfect examples where they post a picture and what do they wait for? Feedback. They want comments. They want likes. They want you know thumbs up, loves. They want feedback. They were raised and conditioned to this continuous feedback. So certainly important to provide that level of feedback to these younger generations. Now let's backtrack to the conversation we had before we started recording. There are certain generations like boomers that might interpret consistent feedback as micromanagement. So there's a bit of a fine line to be struck there and a balance to kind of navigate when it comes to providing that feedback, to providing that coaching to tailor it to the recipient, regardless of the generation, regardless of, you know, it's the role, it's about taking the time to map out and understand the preferences and needs of that person, that, that employee, and then adapting your approach to coaching, your approach to feedback accordingly. So one of the other topics that that Gallup focuses on is from my annual review to my ongoing conversations. So again, that conversation. A while back, I had a uh, conversation with Chris DeSantis. And Chris is the author of the book, Why I Find You Irritating, (laughs) which is about intergenerational conflict at work. And one of the points that he makes that you were just making in different words is the intergenerational differences are real. And the mistake we make is stereotyping everyone into a generation, their generation. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so, you know, what you're talking about, having that conversation, how do you want to be worked with? What is the best leadership style for you? Where would we have that conversation? You just talked about it first, not in the annual review. 
in the performance development plan. I hate the word annual review. I hate the word annual evaluation. It, it connotates this disciplinary exercise. Did I measure up to your standards type situation, which is part and partial to the command and control culture? 100%. And oh, by the way. Yeah. You may have made a note nine months ago about something that I did wrong. Yeah. Now that you're about to talk to me about it, I don't even remember it. Exactly. It's irrelevant. It's absolutely irrelevant. And it's, oh my God, it drives me crazy. But yeah, why not take some, take this exercise, this, this what can be an extremely powerful developmental exercise. And it's an ongoing conversation, as you mentioned, that, you know, you have like, you, you check. Things like not only feedback, recognition, not everybody likes to be, it is another one of those needs of my 10 needs, rewards and recognition, but you know what? Not everybody likes to be recognized the same way. Some people are quite comfortable and actually crave that, you know, public call out at a meeting, while others would prefer a private one-on-one -on -one email. Not to say that some people hate recognition. That's not true. I think they don't like recognition when it is served up in a format that doesn't resonate with their preferences. If you take the time to understand and you've got a bit of a, a user manual, and personally, I'm a huge fan of Everything Disc, also a licensed partner, because I think they're so powerful in terms of helping people understand the needs and preferences and providing this user manual for the different styles within your team. And, and there are certain behaviors kind of to your point earlier about not pigeonholing everyone in a generation, but there are certain behaviors that are very common in certain styles, i.e. if you're of a C style, for example, under the DISC model, then you're not up for these public accolades necessarily. You prefer the private. You're not all about teamwork and, and, and collectively working on projects. You prefer to work a bit more autonomously and independently and then still work as part of a team, but, you know, when we're able to to provide you that opportunity to do a bit more of that analysis that you crave naturally. Taking the time to understand your team members' uh, preferences and needs, and then using that, that development, that performance development process, that conversation to continuously measure the degree to which you're actually meeting them, that can be game-changing. Our relationship, transparency relationship, you're talking about building a relationship between people, not between roles. No, not between roles. And, and that's so important. Lori, I want to go back to love what you do. Mm -hmm. And this has become an increasing conversation, if you will, with my coaching clients. Why are we hiring people who are just coming here to work? If we can hire people who love what they do and we can do what you're talking about, in terms of feeding that love, if you will. Um, you've got a winning combination. You don't have to worry about engagement. You don't have to worry about retention. You don't have to worry about performance, about quality of work, about all of those things that managers tend to sit around and worry about. Mm -hmm. Because if I love what I do and you're feeding me that it, to yeah. do every day, we're both happy. Absolutely. So. So devil's advocate, how do you hire for what you love, what someone loves when you have business needs to meet? I quite frankly ask the question, what gets you up and excited about going to work in the morning? Nice. And then do you align that person with a role that would be, you know, that, that would resonate with I it? Have to. As opposed have to hiring to. for a role? Have to. Yes. 
You have to. And, and if there is not that role there, then you have to be very honest with yourself and that person. Um, I'm, I'm working with some sets of managers now in, in an organization that have just gotten busy filling roles. And so now coming out of COVID. And so now they're busy dealing with turnover and dealing with quiet quitting. I got chewed out once very early in my career by the vice president for fine or for uh, human resources at the University of Minnesota. I'm hiring an executive assistant. The university had 50,000 employees at the time. I interviewed 27 people. He called me up. He said, you have to hire somebody. Everyone we send you can type at X speed, can, you know, has proper telephone answering protocol, hire someone. And I said, I'll hire the right person. <laughs> did you eventually find the right person? I Not only did I eventually find the right person, she worked for me from 1981 to 1983, I think. We just talked on the phone Sunday. No way. Yeah. That's awesome. Because again, it went beyond role to role. It was a person-to-person relationship. Yeah. And relationships, as an FYI, is another one of my 10. So as much as I said, I wouldn't go through all 10 so far. <laughs> rewards and recognition. You've kind of, you've, you've cured me without it being intentional. Rewards and recognition, leadership, relationships, uh, communication, empowerment, and autonomy. Uh, I'm going to add one, uh, clarity. So clarity relevant to their roles and responsibilities, the expectations of the organization, as well as what they can expect from the organization. So it's, it's really a two-way street in understanding that and making sure that you're providing ample opportunity to clarify expectations, because I'm also a dispute resolution practitioner, so I do mediation and, and dispute resolution, um, just general dispute resolution, conflict analysis stuff. And more often than not, the root of the conflict is uncommunicated expectations. Because people should just know. Well, guess what? People don't just know. If it's an unspoken rule, it needs to be spoken. It needs to be written. Uh, Encouraging the clients I work with, I really work with them at mapping out and and improving on that end-to-end employee experience, right? So that how someone who works within your organization experiences their day-to-day throughout their journey from the minute they're being pitched in the interview to the minute they're exiting. And I, I said, you know, why not give them as much information as you can at the beginning of, you know, when you're interviewing with them so they can make an informed choice. There's no such thing as too much information and facilitate connection to your point of relationships by giving them a buddy and a mentor. And they said, I always get, What's the difference? Is it the same thing? So no. The buddy's sole role is to facilitate and transmit those unspoken rules, that that stuff that everybody internally understands from a culture perspective, that unless you speak to someone, which is not likely in those first days because you're so intimidated and it's such a new environment. So by facilitating that connection, early on and giving them this lifeline to say, hey, this is where people go for breaks. This is usually how, you know, we, 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 we end the day or lunching. You know, there's actually three restaurants there and two over there. And that's where people typically go for lunches. Just talking about those kinds of things. The mentor's job is transmitting that more technical knowledge, right? That this is the, the job related know-how that you need to be aware of. So being able to 
increased clarity by providing those connections early on can be game-changing in terms of your retention rate, but just in general about people understanding what they need to do and clarifying what those expectations are and reducing conflict, all that fun jazz. Every relationship is based on expectation. Absolutely. So again, I'm often coaching, make them visible, make them known. (laughs) Because the conflict arises not when I knew that this is what you needed from me and when you needed it and didn't do it. I can't dispute that if I don't perform. No. But when I don't know, and then you come at me because I didn't do. But you never told me to do it. Of course there's a conflict. And there's going to be conflict. Absolutely. I'll give you a concrete example. Client in the healthcare sector. I'm doing this deep dive conflict analysis. I'm figuring out, I've interviewed 72 different staff members to figure out what are some of the root causes of their ongoing conflict. One was a silly one, that when they end the shift at changeover, there's this this one shift that the staff leaving would never backfill the cart. Like they'd never replenish everything on that cart that they go from room to room with. And I thought, oh, okay, well, what is your, you know, what are your standard operating procedures say? Like, what does it say in terms of what's the changeover requirements? Where's the checklist that tells you, you know, what needs to be done? And she's like, no, that's just common sense. People should just know. No, if it's an expectation, it's not. We can't make the assumption that everybody shares the same common sense. So if it is an expectation that is causing issues, you document it somewhere and hold them accountable to it. And then you'll see much, you know, a decrease in that resentment that's festering because the other person never did what you never told them you expected them to. Right. 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 Ultimately. Yeah. So that the next one, the other one I really want to mention too, that I would have mentioned in my top five is purpose and impact because we're seeing an increase in its importance. People aren't as loyal as they may have been when the economy was down. It is a job seekers market. One in four people we're currently working for your organization are likely shopping around from what stats say. That being said, you need to help them connect the work they do on a daily basis to something bigger than themselves. You need to help them understand how the work you do as an organization changes the lives of people, makes other people's lives easier, better, whatever that may be, but they need to see that there is impact and there's a purpose to the work they're doing and you need to help them connect to it. Because often they'll say, oh, what do you do there? And they'll say, well, I'm just a secretary. You know, I just answer the phones. Do you really just answer the phones? Help them see how they're answering the phones takes away a lot of stress and allows other people to focus on, you know, other issues that are advancing the fact that they're able to achieve the broader organizational purpose, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, so help them see it's that, what's that NASA? Um, it was a janitor who worked at NASA. And I think it would have been uh, one of your presidents in the U.S. Would have he was visiting the premises and he stopped and, and talking with him said, you know, oh, you know, what is it you do here? And he says, oh, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. That's clearly an organization who has successfully conveyed purpose and impact to every every one of their team members. That what we often call line of sight, creating that line of sight is like creating a coaching culture one of the more frequent requests in our group coaching programs. And I'll give you one example, um, much like the janitor helping put a man on the moon, the person in charge of a 
wood products, the vision of a company, the people making plywood. You're talking about language. It's one of our main industries in this town. The people making plywood are helping Americans own their first home. They're not just making plywood. No, they're hoping they're helping Americans. Helping people live into, yes. quote, the American dream. Yeah. I have a, a whole on my YouTube, I think. Anyway, somewhere. Uh, the heroes of snack time. And that's exactly what it is. It's about conveying purpose and impact. And it's a snack food company. And, you know, it's it's them telling their employees that they're not just manufacturing snack foods. They're essentially the heroes of snack time. They're, they're the people providing for snack time to happen. <laughs> Lori, we could go on and on and on here, but I think we're going to have to wrap it up. Any last thoughts about people-centered leadership? You know, just to not overcomplicate it and not overthink it. It does not have to be costly. It doesn't have to be a huge investment. It's really just about asking your people what they need more of, taking the time to map it out, and then develop your action plan to improve on it. Laurie Duguay, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Brian.